We are back. Uh, in this part of the show, we often do obituaries, and we should mention today that uh, the first obituary of note is the guy they killed down in Georgia. This is the first of what is expected to be many executions across the country in the wake of the Supreme Court affirming that lethal injections do not constitute cruel and unusual punishment. Personally, I hope here in California that Michael Morales is next. One disturbing note is regarding the execution down in Georgia. On the splash page of, uh, I guess it was Google, I noticed that they often have little little maps next to the item in question. And uh, Georgia was in headlines. The little map that was next to it showed Georgia. The Georgia that has the Black Sea to the west. The Georgia whose capital is Tbilisi. The Georgia who used to be part of the Soviet Union. I'm guessing that whatever web guy in charge of that particular splash page must be in the 18 to 24 year age group who doesn't think that geography and knowing where places that are in the news are is important. And the thing is, it was up there for hours, hours before anyone caught the mistake. And I think we mentioned this obituary on the program a few weeks back, but it now seems to be official and at least the Sacramento Bee reported yesterday that yes, Robert Vesco, U.S. fugitive linked to presidents and schemes, really appears to be dead. Perhaps you saw the picture of Mr. Vesco in the bee yesterday. He just looked like, looked like the greasiest weasel known to man. He had his slicked back black hair, uh, you know, pencil mustache, and smirk. Vesco was a household name in the 1970s uh, when he basically came in and looted a Swiss-based mutual stock fund, which he bought for pennies in the dollar, got indicted for contributing $200,000 to Nixon's 72 re-election campaign, and wound up, at the end of his life, in, of all places, Cuba, where he was in prison for about a decade. Apparently, even the Cubans got fed up with Mr. Vesco after uh, he, he was marketing a drug which he claimed could cure cancer and AIDS. Oddly enough, according to the Bee, uh, which is reprinting the article by Andrea Rodriguez, uh, his business partner in this scheme to market a phony AIDS cure was none other than Donald A. Nixon Jr., the nephew of the former president. Anyway, Robert Vesco, world-class weasel. I, I would recommend that all of you go up and read a bit uh, on his obituary. It's, uh, it's, some, it's some vivid prose. I also want to note in passing uh, the loss of John Hurlitz, a man who used to design muscle cars for Chrysler. Hurlitz made his reputation back in 1970 with the design of the Plymouth Barracuda. The Cuda was clean and largely unadorned with a wide body and hunkered down stance. It hinted at considerable power, said an obituary. Evidently a later model, the Hemi Cuda featured a monster 425 horsepower engine that made it among the most sought-after muscle cars of all time. Evidently at car auctions, some specimens can fetch $2 million. When the craze for muscle cars cooled, Hurwitz later worked on compact cars and minivans. And reportedly had a major hand in the Chrysler design renaissance of the 1990s with his production team that gave birth to the Intrepid, the Concorde, as well as the Neon. What I remember most about uh, Chrysler back in, in the early 1970s was that in the wake of the Arab oil embargo, 
a lot of people thought making smaller cars that got better gas mileage might be a good idea. Remember oh so well a quote, quote from a brilliant Chrysler executive that my mom sent me a clipping of back when I was at college here that noted that uh, no, 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 said the executive. We don't see Chrysler going in for that kind of market. We think what people want in this country is a car that's big enough to take the wife, couple kids, and the family dog off on a mini vacation. So it didn't come as much of a surprise to many when Chrysler got hit very hard uh, by oil prices in the late 70s and basically had to go to the government for a bailout. Of course, the question is, have we learned our lesson in the past 30 years? And the answer would appear to be no. You know, we didn't say too much about uh, the election earlier this week at the top of the program, but yes, uh, Obama and Clinton split a couple of states. The delegates are divided, and as far as I can see, just about anything can happen. One thing's for sure, if John McCain's not to be elected in November, the Democrats, whoever they run, have to pick up four or five states that went red in 2004. And among those red states that have had primaries for the Democrats anyway, Clinton won eight, Obama has won 17. Does that make him the stronger candidate? Well, not necessarily, because some states like Utah are going to go into the red column no matter what. The question is, you know, which states won by which Democrat could be brought into the blue column? Could it be Missouri, Louisiana, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, all states that went for Obama? Or do we need to look at Nevada, New Mexico, Arkansas, Tennessee, Ohio, states that went to Clinton? Well, we don't know, and no one else does either, but we're going to continue to try and look at that in the weeks to come. And speaking of primaries, did you see the follow-up on what we talked about last week, the fact that in Indiana you now needed to have a photo ID to vote? Well, story in the B yesterday, apparently no ID, no vote for 10 retired nuns. After having this ridiculous law certified by the Supreme Court, uh, you know, predictably, it is being used to disenfranchise people who are old and people who are poor. This law was a travesty, this ruling was a travesty, and this, uh, this has basically bought millions of votes for the GOP in November, or at least gives them a net gain of millions of votes in November. And speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, John McCain says he thinks guys like uh, Alito and Roberts are just the kind of guys he's going to appoint to the Supreme Court if elected. And ladies and gentlemen, that's, uh, that's sufficient cause right there to, uh, to consider voting against a third Bush term in effect this year. And here's an odd story you may have heard on NPR yesterday. The Office of Special Counsel Scott Block was invaded by the FBI along with members of the White House Office of Personnel Management. His records were seized. While Laura Jakes Jordan in the AP notes that the raids marked the latest twist in what critics describe as Block's bizarre tenure as the head of the federal agency. Block was nominated by President Bush in June 2003 to head the Office of Special Counsel, an agency responsible for for protecting the rights of federal workers to ensure that whistleblowers are not subjected to retaliation, and also to investigate improper political activity on government property. Apparently, the first thing he did upon taking office was to dismiss numerous complaints without explanation. But what I find is curious that, uh, well, there's been, he's been criticized for years for not doing enough to protect whistleblowers. What I find curious is that Block apparently recommended that uh, the then General Services Administration Chief Larita Doan be disciplined for engaging in illegal political activities and and also doling out no-bid awards Doan abruptly resigned last week at the White House's behest. I wonder if that has more, I mean, actually doing his job has more to do with the fact that uh, apparently for the most part he hasn't been doing his job. 
Uh, one, one does wonder. Noted this article from the, uh, the National Digest file in the B. Apparently an Oregon couple checking their voicemail a couple days back found a frightening three-minute recording of their son caught in battle in Afghanistan. Stephen Phillips, while in combat uh, battling insurgents, activated his phone when it was pressed against his Humvee. It redialed and called his parents in Oregon. Thus his parents got a recording of gunfire, shouts of, of, of more ammo, more ammo. And at the end, you could hear a guy saying, incoming RPG, and then it cut off. The concerned parents then tried to dial their son uh, in Afghanistan and thankfully found out that nobody was wounded or killed during the firefight. Said a relative after they finally got a hold of him, well, he was really embarrassed. He said, oh, don't let grandma hear it. And how about this item from the, uh, the April 20th uh, New York Times? American commanders in, in Afghanistan in recent months have urged a widening of the war that could include U.S. attacks on indigenous Pakistani militants in the tribal areas inside Pakistan, according to U.S. officials. The requests have been rebuffed for now. That's right. The commanders in the field, which we hear so much about in Afghanistan, are asking that we go into the border areas of Pakistan to make significant military actions, and they're being turned down by the Pentagon. The article notes that American commanders would prefer that Pakistani forces attack the militants. But Pakistani military operations in, the, in these areas have slowed in recent weeks to avoid upsetting negotiations going on. Oh, those are negotiations between the Pakistani new government and the Pakistani radicals. Yeah, you remember, remember Afghanistan, the place where Osama bin Laden was operating out of? The place where the plan to attack us on 9-11 was, uh, was directed from? Remember them? Yeah, it seems like just the day we were fighting a war there before we moved on to presumably bigger and better things in Iraq. We would like to refer you back to our David Lamb interview about, uh, about Vietnam a few weeks back because I found uh, an article I'd clipped uh, last August noting that George Bush was warning of carnage if the U.S. were to leave Iraq, and he cited Vietnam as an example. As Lamb correctly pointed out on our show a few weeks back, there was no bloodbath in Vietnam once we were forced out. Now, whether they'll be so lucky in Iraq is another story, but the idea that we have to stay there to prevent a future bloodbath, uh, you know, was wrong then, and it's, it's bogus now. I was disturbed to note a couple weeks back that an abandoned Alpine Lodge is all that remains of Bolivia's renowned Chacaltaya Ski Resort, the world's highest at 17,388 feet above sea level. This correspondent skied at Chacaltaya back in 1991. Or at least I got in a couple of runs and what if the truth be told was not much of a ski area regardless of being the world's highest. But according to Annie Murphy, the uh, San Francisco Chronicle Foreign Service writer, the expansive 150-foot-thick glacier, which once attracted thousands of tourists, has been reduced to a lone patch of ice about nine feet deep. And yet there are those who still claim that global warming is just a myth. It's just not taking place at all. Or if there is some warming, it's natural cycles, not due to human activity, blah, 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 blah. The more time goes on, the more global warming deniers sound like Holocaust deniers. And final quick item of the day, <laughs> it's official. The United States government is spending 1.3 cents to mint a penny and 7.7 .7 cents to mint a nickel. That's right. The government is manufacturing money 
and putting more money into the manufacturing process than comes out the other end. The obvious answer is to quit making nickels out of 75% copper and 25% nickel and start making them out of steel and get rid of the penny completely. That does it for today's show. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our intern is Letty Chavez. Our thanks to Gordon Uncle John Javna of the Bathroom Readers Institute. We hope he'll be back one day. We'll see you next week at the same time. Yeah.